Hello everyone, this is Ari in the Air. Welcome back to the podcast. So glad you're here because today I have one of the most profound conversations I've had on this podcast with my new friend, Dr. John Verveke. John is a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. He is a cognitive scientist and he is fucking on it. This guy has his finger on the pulse of history, humanity, and wisdom in a way that I don't think I've experienced before. Um, It's something that I'm deeply grateful to have experienced personally, and it's something that I can't... It is something that I encourage you to follow in the sense that I encourage you to look into Dr. John Verveke's work, check out his YouTube channel. He's got 20,000 subscribers and has created extensive content regarding the meaning crisis, sense-making, conspiracy theory, so much stuff. And his perspective is so nuanced and informed by wisdom. And so it's a really, really fun conversation. So. Without further ado, I'm going to give you a little tune and I'm going to drop you into a conversation that I just had with Dr. John Verveke. If you guys like this, consider donating to support this show. That's paypal.me slash in the air. Thanks so much. And here we go. writing uh, for the past four hours with my collaborator, Christopher Master Pietro. Uh-huh. I've heard you speak about him. Yes. Yes. So it's going very well. Great. Good to hear that. You're in Toronto. Yes. Yeah. It's, was, it's, it's been beautiful, uh, but it's clouding over now. Where are you? I'm in Bend, Oregon. Ah. Central Oregon, a very beautiful place. Oh, that sounds lovely. Yes, it's um, very unstable right now. There is low pressure coming in, and this time of year, low pressure means we get some moisture. The sun is powerful enough to heat things up and really stir the pot. So we had under showers yesterday, and it looks like that's a, something that's going to happen again today. So not out flying, which um, you know, it's hard for me to schedule things as a paraglide pilot. My passion and the flow state that I thrive on is so dependent on the weather that I have, that I'm like, Oh God, John Verveke on Saturday. God, I hope it's not good flying weather. So <laughs> perfect. <laughs> We're going to have rain today. We're going to have rain today. So, um, I've spent a lot of time listening to your lectures and mm. your talks on rebel wisdom and at the Stoa. And 
I would just start by telling you my my deep gratitude and appreciation for your work. Well, thank you. And I would send you all the encouragement that I have because this is a, there is something about the depth of your knowledge and understanding as well as the, the integral and meta-theoretical things that are really like super, that's kind of the framework. I don't know, I found out about Ken Wilber almost three years ago and it changed my life. Mm -hmm. And so now as we, now as I get connected to Peter Lindbergh and you and Greg Enriquez and a lot of different people who are, you know, Zach Stein, just taking a much broader, higher perspective on all of these things. And, um, that is something that I first experienced in paragliding when you just get 10,000 feet off of the ground. And as your physical perspective changes, it just ripens the ability for your inner perspectives to change. So I really, um, I have so much love and admiration for you. So I just want to extend my, my gratitude. There's also this question of how I want to converse with you for the podcast, because, you know, on one hand, it's like, I want to help people hear the message and the lessons that you have. But on the other hand, and what is much more fun for me is to jam. And so sure. <laughs> there, are, there are so many different videos and you have just done such an incredible job of creating your YouTube channel and the series that you did on awakening from the meaning crisis is like, I can't think of a, I can't think of a single thing that's more powerful for people to watch. That is uh, incredible. And I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I recommend that so highly to people. And so I think what's more fun really is I, I, right now I am in a fluctuating state of turmoil, both intellectually and cognitively, as I try to make sense of this world that seems to be accelerating in craziness, right? And so I really respect your sense of sense-making. And so I would love to kind of just give you a download of like the things that I've been noodling on really hard lately. And um, you know, with the pretext of like, I show up to this conversation, like looking to be transformed and looking to, <laughs> okay. to, to have, to have insight, you know, like I, you know, Lindbergh writes about this, this, this thing that he talks about of, of being up for grabs, mm. being up for grabs, looking out onto the landscape of ideas and wanting to be seduced by the best ones, the good ones, the right yeah. ones. Yeah, yeah, okay? yeah. yeah that's, so Peter. that's that's Peter, and that and Peter and I. One of the things that we've really like come together on is our affinity for coinage and our affinity for metaphor and our ability to really yeah. Yeah. to to jam on on fun metaphors together. And so being up for grabs is something like I come to this conversation up for grabs and I really respect your perspective. And so I want to, 
You know, if, if a new pilot comes to my paragliding site and he's kind of apprehensive or asks for insight from me, I begin by saying, why don't you tell me what you see? Right. And then I can help, like, it'll help me get into your head. And so I can fill in the blanks there. So I want to invite you into my head and have you fill in the blanks and then we can totally go from there. Sounds cool. Okay, so. I love linguistic jamming. <laughs> me too. And honestly, this, this podcast, since COVID hit, I just have, I have, this podcast has been the most transformational project I've ever had. And to be in direct dialogue with people like yourself and Terry Patton and Zach Stein is, um, it's a, it's something that is uh, like a real honor. And it's also like uh, really fun to surf on this huge wave of imposter syndrome. And <laughs> and so all those things are kind of real. So um, one of the things that I'm noticing in myself is that there's almost this fraction. There's this like these, these concepts are like, there's some kind of hard line in my mind right now, as I experience the movement of racial tension in America on top of and nested inside of the pandemic and the meta crisis at large that I feel like a month ago, I was a node in a system that was helping everyone awaken to the reality that the status quo is bad for humanity and it's bad for each and every one of us and we are collectively accelerating towards the edge of some existential cliff. Mm -hmm. Then as the racial conversation comes up, I allow myself emotionally to come into the awareness of what it might possibly be to be enslaved, to be oppressed, to be prejudiced against because of your race, to have your grandparents and your parents and your brothers and your sisters and your cousins and your aunts and uncles to share this common thread that you have experienced on some level of the spectrum, some kind of prejudice, some kind of discrimination, not to mention the collective consciousness still bearing the the traumatic weight of thousands and thousands of years of slavery. Mm -hmm. I'm deeply curious of what the implications are for slave holders. I think that we zoom in so often on what the impact of Black America is by being oppressed and being the descendants of slaves. And I'm also... I have this, um, it seems to me that as we abolish slavery and we move towards civil rights, our hunger for human ownership, control, and violence was not satiated and has been integrated into the game A, into this status quo that we are, that we seem to have been recognizing as bad for all of us. And I am on one hand, the fractions that I'm talking about, on one hand, I have this deep sympathy, this deep inquiry of our collective wound, our the possible 
subjective experiences that I have a hard time fully understanding because they're so divorced from me. I live in central Oregon. We are vastly white. We have some Mexicans and we have a handful of black people, but, and I've also traveled the world and have experienced racism towards me, which is laughable with the level of privilege and the quality of my life. So there's something here that like I can deeply sympathize with and also can't quite fully understand. And the other side is I'm extremely weary of the narrative. Mm -hmm. I am extremely weary of the likelihood that there are ulterior motives, that there are bad actors who are Mm -hmm. poking the bear right now, who are stirring the fire. And Mm -hmm. of course we have this fire that's rotting the foundation of our civilization at large, it seems. And I don't, I'm having a really hard time. I guess the sentiment that I have is that the movement has been hijacked. Hmm. I also feel like there's a, the narrative that's coming out of this is almost it sounds to me like the conspiracy theory narrative where there's this one thing that is explaining all of the problems and that's racism in this, in this case. And so I also noticed just the level of discourse in America that if you right now question the narrative or question the efficacy of the narrative that is that racism is essentially the entire nebulous problem that you're immediately labeled as some kind of pejorative that, that verges on bigot. Right. Right. And so these are kind of the conversations I've been having with my friends lately and the things that I've been really thinking about because I want to be empathetic. I want to be compassionate but I also want to be effective. And I know that America and Western civilization at large, just like any civilization is not inherently stable. And I feel like there are torches lit that are trying to rot and set fire to the establishment that I agree with that is rotten and needs drastic reform, but I don't trust the people who are holding the torches to rebuild anything in a meaningful enough way that would give me confidence to encourage them to set fire to it. Mm -hmm. So I think what I would want to respond to first of all is what I think is a general theme running through everything you said, and it actually encompasses the way you're sort of fractionated, which I think underneath all of your criticisms and concern, there seems to be a unifying one to some degree of a deep distrust in oversimplifying, oversimplification and narratives that oversimplify things uh, too much. 
And I think that if we pursue strategies of oversimplification in the face of a world that is, as you already said, is rapidly complexifying, we are diametrically going the wrong way. We are diametrically going the wrong way. So this has to be done with you know, right, trying to introduce this theme as a meta theme and ask people to step back and think about how the problem is being framed as opposed to how valuable the goal is that we're trying to reach. Um, I agree with you. Do you see what I'm saying? This is not just an oversimplification in the content, but it's also an oversimplification in the very framing of it. Like to get people to step back and say, I can agree with your goal, and precisely because I agree with your goal, I think the way you're framing it is wrong because I have good reason to believe it's not going to lead to the goal that we both share. Mm -hmm. and, I'm, and to try and get and try to say, can you hear what I'm saying as opposed to automatically fixating? See, this goes to a lot of the work I do in cognitive science. You, you, you might have heard me say this before. The besetting sin of irrationality is to be over fixated on the super saliency, the self-relevancy of the product of our cognition and not pay much attention to or value for its own sake the process by which we are trying to produce various beliefs or various actions. And so I think we need to spend more time thinking about the fact that we have to be much more clear about challenging oversimplification as a strategy for dealing with an inherently complex situation. Let's take this very difficult and challenging issue. So I agree with you, right? Racism, let's just say, you know, racism is a great evil and colonialism and, it's, uh, uh, and the way it drove racism has caused titanic suffering that is still reverberating today, suffering and distress. Mm -hmm. But to see that as the cause of all of humanity's ills, I agree with you, it verges on like a conspiracy theory. It, ver it verges on, uh, again, oversimplification to say, I don't think, for example, that we should reduce or identify all of humanity's, you know, all of humanity's sufferings and distresses to this one cause. For example, I think it's plausible because I sort of I predicted this that as the COVID crisis accelerated, that would exacerbate the meaning crisis. It would enhance people's sense of being disconnected from themselves, each other, and the world. Their sense of home would be lost. They'd have this really weird, almost Iron Age worldview in which there's a ubiquitous, invisible threat out there that could strike them down and demanding sacrifice and a purity code and that all of this was going to have titanic effects on people's mental health. Um, and, that, and, and, and it was already coming to my awareness because, you know, a lot of these discussions I was having with people, both, you know, recorded and unrecorded, people were increasingly reporting a sense of how everything felt surreal. And that's always a very telling adjective. Mm. People are saying things are surreal. So is it plausibly the case that, Right, a lot of what we're seeing in your country right now is not just about racism, but about a general 
anger and frustration with sort of reality itself. Like, like the, 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 there's, there's, there's an expression of, I don't like the way things are going. That is not, right? It's not separate from, but it's not reducible to, I don't like the way I'm being treated. Those aren't the same problem. I want to say this very carefully, right? They are both issues. There's the important issue, I don't like the way I'm being treated. But that's not the same as, I don't like the way things are going. I don't like the way reality is unfolding. So, for example, I would see, you know, a, a trenchant kind of fundamentalism as as much a reaction to that as I'm seeing the riots as a reaction to that. Because, you know, fun, a, a fundamentalist might, I don't like the way the world is going, and I want to I take it back to, right? There are many symptomatic responses to, I don't like the way reality is complexifying. And so I think it's very, we should ask ourselves very carefully, like, are the actions we're seeing, so, you know, uh, Weber famously talked about what's manifest and latent. Clearly, the manifest goal, right, is people are angry and frustrated. And part of it is about police brutality, which needs to be addressed. But I think the way it has spread and the way it has, you know, it's, it's like, it's very much like, a, you know, a, a kind of, and I'm trying to sort of play with this, playful. It's very much itself a contagion. I'm not saying it's a disease, but like, right, it's, it's also spread out. And, and, and notice what's implicit, that people are, sort of backgrounding the COVID crisis because they have something to focus on, mm -hmm. something to do, right? A, a narrative that removes all that surreality and all that anxiety, mm. all that disconnectedness, all this sense, because there's a, there's, there's a deeper kind of horror at work. So there's no reason to see these two factors in competition with each other. There's no reason to say, Anybody who doesn't say it's all just racism is therefore a racist. Because, again, I think that's to oversimplify the situation. It's to also ignore, right, the many other ways in which people are suffering. People, of course, are also suffering, suffering like I said, mental health issues. They're suffering socioeconomically. They're suffering relationship loss, right? They're, and they're also suffering um, from very much a, a sense of that the normalcy of things. See, as a cognitive scientist, I know that what your brain wants more than anything else is familiarity. Your brain would prefer familiar unhappiness to unpredictable happiness. And that is also being thwarted right now. And we know, and this, this even extends across species, not just across different groups of people or communities, right? That when you put organisms into situations where normalcy is significantly challenged, they, they go one of two ways. They rage, right, and, they're, and they become aggressive and destructive, or they withdraw into learned helplessness. Hmm. And so we also, that points to, we're seeing people that are doing the raging, but it's also making us ignore the people who are withdrawing into learned helplessness. Hmm. We're not talking about them. We're not addressing them. There's more I can say. What I'm trying to lay out here is, right, that I think that the main point I want to resonate with what you said is don't deal with dynamic complexity with an oversimplification narrative. That is not going the right way. 
And when you're doing that, you're actually masking many other ways in which people are suffering and in distress. And that is, can't, there's no way to legitimate that. And, and it is not a zero sum game. It is not like, unless all attention is given to this particular kind, right? And if I take a little bit of a, like, it's not, it doesn't work that way. It's not a zero sum game like that. We need to be thinking, uh, like you said, we need to be thinking of ways of reformulating how we're reformulating, how we're formulating our problems. Like, what is it we want to achieve out of all of this? What, is, what are our goals? Are, the, are our goals expressing of discontent? Is that what we want? Do we want to change legislation? Do we want to change attitude, right? Is this the right way to change attitude? I mean, Martin Luther King had a long argument that, the prime, that what's behind racism is fear. Right, that white people fear black people in a in a powerful. I don't mean in a powerful in a, in a good sense. I mean it powerfully motivates them, mm -hmm. right? And, and that's why they they there's you want to oppress you you oppress and control what you're afraid of and what you mm -hmm. want to exploit. And he thought he, that's why he he adopted Gandhi's idea about nonviolence because he said if I want to change racism, I've got to attack the root. I've got to get people out of being afraid, mm -hmm. I've got to get them, I, I, I got to instead look out with compassion, right? I don't know if Martin Luther King's words are right for us right now, but what I'm trying to say is even within the history of this kind of protest, there have been fundamentally different formulations. And I have not yet heard, for example, a good argument as to why this formulation is even better than the previous ones within that community's own history. Um, and so again, what is it we're trying to do here? Are we actually trying to reduce suffering, reduce distress, afford flourishing? If so, are we criticizing the right groups? I'm much more suspicious of sort of corporate capitalism than I am of white supremacists for the amount of suffering and distress they can cause in the world. Mm. I'm not denying the existence of white supremacists. I want to say that again. I'm not denying it, and I'm not denying that they do nasty things. But if you ask me, what, what, what do I think is causing more suffering to all communities, but especially even to right, the more marginalized communities, I'm more suspicious of corporate capitalism than I, is, I am of white supremacy. Again, we need a much more complex right, framing of the problem, and we need to be much more willing to be adaptive and transformative. We shouldn't adopt sort of pseudo-religious narratives that have a single cause, a single utopic vision, and, 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 and demand an absolute unquestioning and complete allegiance. That strikes me as just the wrong framing for the problem at hand. And I hope I've been heard in what I've said. Uh, I, I, I suspect and I fear that I'm going to be mislabeled um, and misrepresented in what I was trying to say there. Mm. Yeah, I think that, I guess what comes up for me is a feeling of validation and a, an ease that comes with, okay, yes, looking at the frames that we put on any problem is of utmost importance. And that was a thread that I'd been pulling on for a, for a while, and I feel encouraged to continue pulling on that thread. Mm.
as far as your feeling of vulnerability and exposure to being misinterpreted and slanderously labeled, that is a fear that I share. And I think that it's the reality that that is possible is I would, or I intuit that that's a a mechanism of control for the narrative at hand, right? That's the label of conspiracy theorist. That's the label of bigot. That's um, to take someone's nuanced perspective and to label it as simplistic, reductive, and racist is um, something that is all too common right now. And as I, I have been doing this podcast for a while and the long form is just so much more apt at sharing nuance than a paragraph that I can write, right? And I see the discourse on platforms like Facebook or Instagram where people are typing with two thumbs, so it has to be short, which lends them to oversimplifications and labeling. I'm also seeing this influence of the algorithm that people don't seem to recognize in any meaningful way. And an event like Blackout Tuesday, I don't know if you saw that on Instagram or Facebook, everyone just posted black photos, just a, just a black box. And I didn't hear, I didn't see anything that that was actually organized or created for an outcome. It was almost like a couple people did it and the algorithm can pick up on that. And then it's a snowball that rolls. Right, right, right. And so what, what you're talking about of what are we trying to do? What is the goal that we share? Where do our principles align? Where do we both feel horror with the system? And if we can come to that level of agreement, then we can start discussing the frameworks in which we can look at the problem to then begin the, pro- the process of creating what would be hypothetical solutions that might lead us to the outcome yes. that we're talking about. Yes. It brings up for me the Forrest Landry argument, the, you know, uh, a big problem well thought out is halfway solved. Yeah, but this is the, what the research shows. Problem formulation is way more important. How you formulate the problem space, how you do what I'd argue is, is relevance realization and how you set up the problem is way more important. And it's what it's very hard to give artificial intelligence. Moving through, once a problem is well formulated and then calculating through the problem space, being fixated on the goal, fixated on the product, right? Um, already AI is better than us at that. But that only shows you that that's not the heart, the guts of most of what goes on in dealing with real world problem solving Mm -hmm. in which taking an ill-defined and messy situation and wrestling with it repeatedly um, with finesse so that you get 
an appropriate problem formulation that's actionable. Uh, having an insight that your framing and your formulation are actually blocking you from achieving your goal. This is the core of insight that very often, because we are so, because our frames are so transparent to us, we're fixated on the goal, right? We can't have the, and to, we can't have an insight. And what it is to have an insight is to step back and look back and say, wait, my way of framing is actually what's preventing me from getting to the goal. The goal is good, but the framing is actually what is thwarting me. That's the core of insight. That's the core of insight. And so I think that if we don't bring back the importance of problem framing, the importance of recognizing complexity, accelerating complexity, accelerating um, ill-definedness, and the need for insight, I think we are seriously harming all parties involved in this, in this process we're going through very deeply. And, and just to be clear, because I want to argue against anybody who's going to voice this on me, this is not some crypto way of trying to preserve the status quo. I am not an advocate for that at all. And that is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about exactly the opposite, right? I'm talking about what's needed now is not the French Revolution. What's needed now is the Axial Revolution. We need a fundamental change in the, our cultural cognitive grammar that can transform our civilization. The idea of changing just our legislation or our, 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 our particular form of governance is insufficient for what we are facing right now. Yeah, the, to, to take what you said and to put it onto what I'm chewing on right now, it's the idea that a month ago, everyone was saying the status quo is bad for all of us. And now they're saying, oh, wait, maybe the status quo is just bad for black guys and we need to reform the legislation so it includes them in the corporate capitalist model instead of taking the whole thing into microscopic view so that we can reimagine. Um, and I, I would love to hear from like more... Like you're, you, you mentioned the axial revolution. That's something I've heard you talk about on the on your series on YouTube. So maybe you can draw the the parallels there. Like let us know what the axial revolution is and draw the modern parallels sure. of what you're encouraging are the the hypothetical revolution that you're alluding to. There is right. So. Uh, uh, that's a little bit of a task because, you know, I, I took several <laughs> hours to do that. Um, so uh, uh, I, I'm asking for a bit of forbearance on your part um, and patience as I, because as I, I'm going to be sort of processing behind the scenes. Um, so what, let's take the idea that, um, oh, well, this is one way I introduce it to students. I'll sometimes ask them, you know, how many of you have read the Egyptian Book of the Dead? or the hymns of Akhenaten, nobody puts their hands up. How, have you read, how many of you read perhaps the epic of Gilgamesh? Maybe one person puts their hand up. Well, how many of you have read Plato or the Bible or the Tao Te Ching? And then most people put their hands up. And that's, I'm saying, isn't that odd that you somehow think that some ancient material is part of your history and is relevant to you. And then before that, 
doesn't even come on your radar, right? Even though the civilizations I just mentioned, the Egyptian and Mesopotamian are literally the cradle of civilization and they're long lasting, like thousands of years in length. Mm -hmm. And yet you ignore them. Well, why? That's, think about what kind of revolution that is, right? That all of that past is, is, is irrelevant to you, but up to a certain line, well, what's the line? And that's the idea originally proposed by Carl Jaspers, but developed by other people, Bella and others, that around, uh, well, first of all, around 1200 BCE was the biggest collapse this, that we've seen in the in world history of civilization. So this is pertinent for us to pay attention to, mm -hmm. because this is even greater than the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, right, in the fifth century. So around 1200 BCE, more cities go out of existence than ever in the world. Trade routes break down, uh, literacy has almost disappeared, entire empires, the Hittite Empire, others, you know, disappear. The vast, huge empires withdraw to like rumps like e Egypt and Assyria, right? It's like, it's almost, it's almost, uh, one author compared it to like the extinction event of the dinosaurs. And then you see the, the mammals all speciate and radiate into different species. And what happens is all of these dinosaur empires and this whole way of life collapse and there's a, there's a, a just a pronounced dark age. And then you see all these little kingdoms emerging and all this experimentation, um, social experimentation. And what happens in that period is there's a fundamental change in how people see the world. Uh, so a philosopher from my country, a world important philosopher, I used to be more famous, Charles Taylor, a Canadian, he talks about how before the Axel Revolution, we were in what he called a continuous cosmos. Human beings saw themselves as belonging to a continuum mm -hmm. in which there wasn't any deep difference in kind between us and animals and human beings and gods. That's why human beings could literally be gods, like in Egypt, right? Mm -hmm. Pharaoh was a, a, a god in an important sense. And, it's, uh, and also time is continuous. It moves in big cycles like this, right? Circling around. And what you're, what you're always trying to do is you're always trying to get in harmony with this and try and, get, try and get in line and tap back into the original creation. So this is the continuous cosmos. Bronze Age collapse happens. And then there's all these little, like all these little mammal kingdoms, if you allow me the analogy. And they start experimenting with new ways of social organization. And this give, these give rise to new psychotechnology. A, psycho, you know, a tool is something that fits, like a physical tool is something that, like here's this mug. I can't hold water very well with my hand, but the mug fits my hand and enhances my ability to hold water. A psychotechnology is a socially created standardized way of processing, formatting, communicating, sharing information that it is rapidly internalizable and yet is also rapidly shareable with other people. So it, it really enhances your ability to connect your own cognition and to connect to other people. And like my mug, enhance your cognition powerfully. Mm -hmm. And so you get things like alphabetic literacy being created. Uh, numeracy is being created. Um, coinage is being created, which is, gives you an abstract symbol system and the need to calculate. All these things are being created as just part of the socioeconomic experimentation that's going on but they're being created bottom up. There's no, there's nobody, ah, oh, this is how we're going to engineer a new society. That's not happening. All these psychotechnologies get in, but what happens is they're, they, precisely because they're so prosaic and practical, they permeate into people's cognition. Now, if I give you alphabetic literacy, think about what, imagine if I took literacy from you, 
the problems you can no longer solve. There's your ability to solve problems goes like this. If I take literacy from you, your ability to become aware of your own cognition, because goes like this, because if the only metacognition that's available to you is your introspection, that's ephemeral and fleeting. But if you can put it down on paper and come back to it again and again and again, mm -hmm. and also share it with me, and I can give you criticism, you're massively enhancing your ability to become critically self-aware of your own cognition. And I'm giving you also now numeracy, abstract numbers, to abstract symbol systems, because you're using coinage. Money didn't exist before. We forget that, right? So you've got this abstract symbolic thought. You've got a capacity for self-reflection. You've got rigorous formal, formal thinking because you have to do much more calculation because you're using, right? And that's why, that's why geometry is going to be invented. Right? So you have all of this cognition that massively empowers your ability to become aware of and right, increase the scope of your own cognition, link it with other people's minds, link it with other instances of your own mind. It's massive empowerment. And what it does, right, is while it simultaneously empowers people's cognition, it also makes them much more aware of how prey they are to self-deception. The awareness that the mind is a source of illusion comes into prominence mm -hmm. at this time. And people start to reconfigure the whole way they think about the world. They didn't, they don't see, right? They don't have a continuous cosmos anymore. They now start to make this distinction in kind, not just an amount of power, but the distinction in kind between the everyday world and the sacred world, the two worlds. Mm -hmm. And in the pre-axial world, wisdom meant to try to fit in with that continuous single cosmos and try to get as much of its power you, as you could. But now, after this change, this new realization, this new mythos, people say, no, no, I don't want to fit the everyday world. This is the world of, that is bereft by self-deception and by the violence and the chaos that that self-deception causes. People started taking responsibility for, for suffering and violence, rather than just seeing it as part of the natural order. Instead, what I wanna do is I wanna to transcend to that upper world. That's why we have all of this language of self-transcendence and things being higher and all of this language. And what happens is a whole different way of understanding what it is to be a human being, a whole different way of understanding what it is to be real, a whole different way of understanding what it is to be sacred or divine, a whole different understanding of what it is to be wise. All of this comes in, and it permeates the rest of the world because it generates all of the great world religions. All of the great world religions are gonna come out of this actual revolution. Taoism, right? Buddhism, Confucianism, what, uh, the beginnings of what's gonna become you know, Judaism, right? And, and, there, and, and that radical idea that time doesn't move in a line, that time is Sorry, time doesn't move in a circle. Time is a line. It, the future is open. We can change it by our actions. Mm -hmm. Notice that all of this is even presupposed by, the, by all the demonstrations that are going on. All of this axial way of thinking is part of the grammar, the cultural cognitive grammar that is underlying the political action that we see. But people are unaware of it. And, they're un and it's not natural to you because before the axial revolution, there are literally millennia of civilization in which people did not 
see or experience themselves that way. The axial revolution is that kind of fundamental change in our fundamental framing of our identity, the world, sacredness, meaning, history, all of that, that makes it possible for a new way of civilization to emerge, which is much more pervasive and profound than just a new form of government or state. That's what I'm talking about. I hope that was helpful. Man, that is... <laughs> that is unreal, John, that is unreal. That's what I mean when I say, I think we need the axial revolution mm -hmm. or something. I'm, I'm using these as, an, as analogs, obviously. Mm -hmm. I think we need the axial revolution not the French Revolution. I love that. And tell me what the hypothetical modern axial revolutions look like. I have an idea as to what that, um, how I could like label that or examples of that. But what is what is what what's real for you there? So what's happening right now? Right. What's happening right now? is the creation of the foundations of an alternative culture. Um, and I don't mean that like a national culture. I mean the way human beings are cultural beings rather than just biological beings. I'm using culture in that sense, mm -hmm. right? Culture as a phenomena of humanity. I'm not talking about a particular culture, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, sorry, a particular national culture. So. What's happening is you see something analogous to the axial revolution. You see the emergence of new psychotechnologies, new ecologies of practices, new communities dedicated to these ecologies of practices and the transformants, the transformation of all of those dimensions that I've talked about. What the agent is, what the arena is, what the sacred is, what, what meaning is, what wisdom is. All of that is already happening. I know it because I'm in discourse with all a lot of these people, not all of them. Sorry, that was ridiculously pretentious. I'm in discourse <laughs> with a lot of these, I'm in discourse with a lot of these people, right? These bottom-up communities, these new ecologies of practices. Mm -hmm. And some of them, you know, are, are physically located, some of them are virtually located, and this is all bubbling up. And COVID has accelerated that, mm -hmm. right? Because while some people sort of got, and, uh, and I feel for them, got overwhelmed by, by the chaos, other people have said, no, no, this is, this is like the Bronze Age collapse. This is the opportunity, this is the time for radical social experimentation, which isn't the same thing as just doing political action. It's about creating entire systems of practice, entire ecologies of practice, new ways in which human beings formulate the fundamental problems that are pervasive in their existence. Like, so analogs, right, um, to what literacy, alphabetic literacy were and coinage were, people are doing this. And what I'm trying to do with my work is to point out the, re the deep relevancy of this revolution that's emerging because it doesn't get the press. Mm -hmm. But if you were to go back towards the end of the Roman Empire, the press would have been covering what was happening in Rome and what, what blah, 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 and all this, and what's happening in Constantinople and all the politics. And meanwhile, Augustine is in Hippo, the barbarians are at the gate and he's writing the city of God, and that's gonna lay the foundations for a new civilization, the medieval world, because he's changing the entire 
cultural cognitive grammar, not on his own. He's making use of two centuries of a bottom-up change of new practices, new ways of being, new ways of forming communities, a cultural revolution that only eventually becomes a, right, a political change. And so this is happening, right? This is happening. Now, what's, what I think is important about that is to get the framing of this right, and this is where I'm doing all the work with Jordan Hall and Guy Senstock and Peter Lindbergh and Christopher Pietro, right, is that I think this new analog for the Axial Revolution, just like the Axial Revolution broke the cognitive cultural grammar of the Bronze Age world and afforded a new way of being, we have to break out of the cultural cognitive grammar given to us by the Axial Revolution. We don't throw away everything we've gained from it, but we have to fundamentally, right, so there's the, the bottom up ch change, and then there's also the, you know, more top down, not from politicians, because they're ignoring all of this, but, right, from the scientific community, who's really fundamentally starting to change at a deep level. I, I'm, I'm participating in this change. Mm -hmm our fundamental understanding of cognition and meaning making and self transcendence and you know what 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 these spirit what spiritual experiences are right all of that is that that top down science and that bottom up psychotechnological engineering and community engineering they're starting to meet and talk to each other and i think that has the capacity to profoundly change the deep cultural cognitive grammar and afford well I mean, it sounds pretentious, right? But to have found a new way of civilization rather than just a new way of governance. Because the meta crisis is something that requires a restructuring of civilization. How is addressing racism, which should be addressed, going to deal with ecological threat? How? I don't see it. What we need is, yes, we need to address both of those problems individually, but we also need to underneath both of them that is generating both of them together at the same time right now. I sense that there's like a frustration. <laughs> there's a frust <laughs> It's a frustration um, in me. Uh, it shouldn't be there. Um, it, I, <laughs> I share it. I share it. That's, I think, why I noticed That's why I noticed it. Well, it might even be my own projection. I, I, the reason why I, well, I, I have no right to comment upon you. Um, so from my own point, what I, what I don't like about the frustration, at least one aspect of the frustration, perhaps, perhaps a part that I don't think is shared with you, is part of the frustration is hubristic, right? It is very hubristic. It's like, Oh, I have the answer and the, you know, they just won't listen. Yeah. And that is a way of framing things that needs to be challenged. And I want to challenge it right here, right now in myself. Mm -hmm. Right. I, 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 I'm not claiming that. So I'm trying to get that, 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 that virtue, you know, Aristotle says virtues are always between not doing enough and doing too much, mm -hmm. right? And Buddhism has the middle path. This is also kind of a universal convergence idea. I'm trying to get that place, that virtuous place where I can give you my very best, which also means my commitment to it mm -hmm. existentially, not just an intellectual proposition, 
but also not trespass into, I have the way. Mm -hmm. Because that is part of what needs to be challenged. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a really delicate line there. It's a really delicate line. And there's also this like... Um, I was just going to say self-righteousness. Look, cruelty is bad, but self-righteousness is very dangerous too. So we have to, like we have to, we have, again, we can't oversimplify virtue. Mm-hmm. We can't. You know, it, it makes me think of like teacherly authority and one, one thing that's like, the hubris that is, I have the answer, is like the a, a poisoning of the teacherly authority. Sure. But there's also this, this thing that Lindbergh talked about that it was almost like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't if you bring an argument with enough passion, enough energy. Like, if I care enough about humanity suffering civilization, that will actually, that it will, on some level, irritate me that I can't get this across. Yes, 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 yeah. That then Verveke's, he's a madman. He's lost his fucking marbles. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it, it's a really delicate line to walk. And, you know, like... the stoic perspective or the you know the very humble perspective that you can think but not be totally certain about that you have the way at the same time it's like there are things that historically have been proven to just not work well oh yes i mean there is a big difference between having knowledge and being ignorant Right. But so this is, again, the middle way. Right. Like, so there's two things here. Counting on. That's what I want to say. Depending on the difference between knowledge and ignorance is important. But see, wisdom and understanding are the same thing as having knowledge. Understanding is to grasp the significance of what you know. And wisdom is to create a, a way of being that can enact that significance and that those are different things and so i can do all of those things but if i if i want to if i want to properly love wisdom i have to understand that grasping the significance of my knowledge in my existential commitments is always an act of transformation. I could, this is not knowing by being informed. This is knowing through transformation and there is no transformation without a commitment to two things, a commitment to a process that transcends you because then there's no self transcendence and a humility that you only participate in this process. You are not the author, the creator, 
or even manager of that process. Wow, that's very profound. Say it again there, wisdom is the creation so, of a practice that, in, that enacts the deep knowledge. Yeah, so I mean, this is a distinction, I mean, this is a distinction that's coming out in work I'm doing with Leo Ferraro on pedagogy, on being a good teacher. Mm -hmm. Being a good teacher is not just a matter of disseminating knowledge, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's, it's more about promoting understanding, which is to grasp the significance, the relevance of that. And then wisdom is how do I create virtues? How do I create sets of skills and sensibility and even a sense of self and world that properly enacts that realization, the grasping of the significance. It's one, it's one, you've been in this situation. You're, you're, perhaps you're in conflict with your, your partner, your, 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 your romantic partner. And you, you get that something significant is happening here. But that doesn't mean you're, you can appropriately, right, act in response, you, which is what the original meaning of responsibility, that you can appropriately respond to the significance you grasp. So it's, you, there's multiple things, layers here. You can know. But that's not the same thing as grasping the significance. You can know that she's upset. I'm straight, so I'll just use that as an example, right? You can know she's upset, but have you grasped the significance of this? Mm -hmm. And then once you've grasped the significance, that doesn't guarantee that you have the sets of skills and sensibilities to undergo the transformation, to, right, to practice what is needed to actually appropriately respond to the significance that you've grasped. That's wisdom, at least part of what wisdom is. That is, that is a process in which you have to commit yourself, mm -hmm. right? Commit yourself to a process. You're like, you, wisdom, that, that's why nobody is wise. You're only philia, Sophia. You're only a lover of wisdom because you are always committing yourself to a process that transcends you and that continually demands transformation from you. There's no way of grasping that with hubris. This is why, and this is something I keep trying to remind people of, for every, because we overemphasize, although Rafe Kelly's had some very good nuances, like really good way of addressing some of my concerns here. So I want to point that out to people. Go listen to some of the conversations I had with him about this, because he's, he's, he's right in a lot of important ways. And he, he, I think you would agree with this in point. We have, we've overemphasized the hero archetype and reduced it to the hero warrior, and we forgot that for every Greek myth of heroism, there's a Greek myth of hubris. For every Hercules, right, and Theseus, there's an Icarus and there's a Phaeton or an Arachne, mm. right? We have to remember that. It's like what Yates said, you know, people are filled with this passionate intensity this passionate conviction that they're right you know in the second coming you know the center will not hold right everything's falling apart and and that's what's really concerning to me that's what i mean when i say uh, you know if if i have to get rid of one of these two the one i want to get rid of first is cruelty but but a very close second is i want to get rid of self-righteousness because self-righteousness really prevents wisdom and virtue that's what jesus of nazareth was talking about a lot. Sorry, I'm talking too much. You're really not, though. And the 
you're not. And the, the profundity of the lesson is hits me in the head like a brick because it is essentially, I feel like one of the deep threads there is embodiment. Oh yes. The deep thread there is embodiment. We are addicted to knowing we are addicted to certainty and we don't embody any of these practices that allow us the, as you say, to understand the significance of the situation before we jump to some kind of half-cocked solution, some oversimplification. That thread that you just noted was very astute of you. It's one, uh, the, I belong to a group of people like Evan Thompson and others, Sean Gallagher, Dan Chiappe, what's called 4E Cognitive Science. And one of the four E, to see cognition as embodied, embedded, right? Extended and enacted. And you're putting your finger on exactly that. And it's telling that this is, you're, and thank you for saying that, but let's pay attention to the, the phenomenon, not me, right? The phenomenon, not me, right? That the, you know, the phenomenon of embodiment is like what's emerging as, you know, the existential response, but it's also this, this, the, this is the core theme that's coming out of the cutting edge cognitive science about what our cognition is like and how our meaning making actually works. And those two belong together. Mm-hmm. Those two belong together. We, we have, you, you say we have, we have a, are just in our head, what I call purely propositional knowing, mm-hmm. you know, very ideologically oriented. And it's based on a view of the mind that I call the monolithic mind, that the mind is just inside the head and it's, you're just, it's just monological talking to yourself and it, right, all that self-enclosedness. All, both sides of that have to be, we have to get rid of that. We have to get rid of that idea that all knowledge is, all knowledge is this proposition and the mind is just sort of a monologue, a monadic monologue in your head. That's not what it is. A, it seems that a reimagination of human nature is critical, not just ripe, but absolutely foundational to move forward. I think that is, that is a very elegant way of putting what I've been trying to say. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was trying to get with the slogan of, we need something like the Axial Revolution rather than just the French Revolution. Yeah, French Revolution being political and the Axial being completely and totally holistic and like some kind of deep acid trip that brings you a perspective you never could have gleaned by thinking. Yeah. And this is something that I experience in my own life. Like I can sit here and have a really, really deep conversation and I can be in my head. My head works so fucking good. I have way easier time sitting and talking than sitting in meditation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. I still find myself emotionally hijackable. Yes. 
there's a thing that Zach Stein that I, I don't, I'm not sure if he coined it, but it's in his newest book. Concrete utopian theorizing. Uh, that sounds like Zach. I uh, <laughs> probably know I've had, I've had the privilege of being in several conversations one-on-one with, with Zach and also uh, Zach and I and Andrew Sweeney. There's another one uh, in forma- information because we all like being involved and participating. Um, I have deep respect for what Zach is doing. I think anything that can promote so more people are aware of what Zach is talking about and what he's doing is important. So I, I just want to take this opportunity to tell people, pay more attention to Zach Stein, read what he's writing, take a look at his videos, take a look at his conversations, and also pay attention to the, his manner. There's no hubris in Zach. Oh my there, God. there is, there's, there's just that, there's just a beautiful presencing of a you know of a mind that is deeply nuanced in a way that is insightful like it's not it's not nuanced in a way that's convoluted and you know makes everything just like what what's going on it's it it it's like it's like it's like a musician who like <laughs> he he picks up on all of these threads and then he he harmonizes them with insights so that they become Right, they become intelligible to large numbers of people in 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 both uh, you know a, a conceptual way, but also in a motivating way. And I think his, I think it's his central thesis, or at least one of his central ideas. You know, and he and I have talked about this, and I've also talked with Jordan Hall about this. About you know, part of this axial-like revolution is a deep reformulation of what education is and what education means for mm-hmm. for us and that we need to we need to put education in the service of enculturation like it used to be rather than in the service of preparing us for market right mm-hmm. participation um, and and that's becoming really apparent now and so his he's right that I th- think that you know because you see that in the axial revolution you see a f- fundamental change you i mean people forget that it's in the axial revolution that education as a thing emerges plato creates literally the academy right literally the place called the academy that's where it starts right and we think well there's always been schools right that's just not it right and so zach is right that that that's the place where we need to just do so much more um, I'm very suspicious of utopians, utopian thinking, uh, because uh, I worry about uh, the way it tries to foreclose on a process of emergence prematurely. If, we're, if what we're talking about is really the case, that we're in a situation of dynamic emergence, complexification, and we have to engage in transformative processes, I worry about people who claim to have a clear picture of the future. Mm-hmm. But I think what Zach means by concrete utopianism is not that. He doesn't say, this is the future. He says, this is the way in which we can, at at the level of the guts of our civilization, reformulate what education means in a way that can steer us towards the kind of life that human beings should be living. And I I honor Zach for that. Like I say, I'm hesitant of uh, utopianism, but I think think if I have him right, 
that 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 putting together of the concrete with the utopian i think it's what i'm talking about i think he's proposing to use the language we've already been using a fundamental reformulation of the problem absolutely absolutely and yeah his work has me feel heard and like fought for i think we all have our own traumas from public school and mine are are exactly that and and when you talk about the lack of hubris it is if you you can even watch a youtube video you can even listen to my podcast here on the area and there podcast with zach stein and you can just sense the level of humility and embodiment and yeah. and uh, it's like the the wisdom the saginess is so yeah. is so apparent yeah. and it it really the it kind of brings me back to just like the integral way of thinking or the holistic way of thinking or the i don't know this omni consideration where we would open ourselves and train ourselves to take in as many different not just perspectives i feel like the current understanding of an open mind is that you could understand someone's perspective enough to argue against it. Yeah. Yeah. It's adversarial. Yeah. It's very adversarial. And that is something that I have grown so tired of this adversarial discourse seems to have taken over. Yeah. And it makes it almost it almost puts people like Zach Stein on the fringe because he does not he there's no weapons in his hand no no zach is not doing monologue zach like and i i aspire to this too and he's encouraging to me for that the way he exemplifies it i i i aspire to dialogos mm -hmm. i aspire to the idea of not adversarial processing, right? But what in biology is called opponent processing. You and I commit to a process in which we may disagree, but it's not about you being right or me being right. It's about us getting into right relationship with each other and with the world. And that's a fundamentally different thing. The idea that you and I, even if we don't come to agreement, because I have dialogue with people that, uh, you know, like, you know, that have, sort of you know literally religious differences from me mm -hmm. but we come out of it we come out of it because we go into it in good faith again we commit to the process right that transcends us we commit to the idea that one of the best ways i can correct myself is listening to you in fact that's the best way that's what the research is showing that the best way of self-correction is actually in dialogue with other people mm -hmm. human reason evolved to, to work dialogically not monologically right? and so i can get into these discussion with these people and, and what happens is we we come to this we come to you and i have both got to a place where we couldn't have gotten to individually you got somewhere you couldn't get to on your own and i got to somewhere i couldn't get to on my own and that was the point of the dialogue not me defeating you and making you some sort of mimetic you know copy of me but rather, you come out of it and you said, I'm in a different, I've gone through transformation. 
and I've got to a place I couldn't have got to on my own. And I say, yeah, me too. And therefore what we get is we take each other seriously and we have the capacity for good faith dialogue, which is not the same thing as, oh, we failed if we haven't come to a conclusive agreement between us. Mm-hmm. Where if, and, and, the, and secondly, the only way to get agreement is by defeating the opponent till they capitulate. I don't, I'm not interested in that anymore. You know what? I'm sorry, this will sound arrogant, but it, it, it's, it, it's, it's meant to try and be personal disclosure. I'm really good at that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I can do it. I have the training, right? I have, the, I have literally decades of training with the very best, but I don't want to do that. What, like, it's, it's like, again, what's the goal that's being served? I, I want to, I want to participate in as many people as possible getting to a place, not just in their thinking, but in their framing that they couldn't get to on their own. I want to belong to that. Amen, dude. And I feel like when you say that you can do that, that you're trained in that, I am the middle of three boys and grew up wrestling yeah. and grew up fist fighting. And it's like, man, like that's my, that's my first language. Yeah. That's my first language, man. And it's like, I'm trying so hard to learn how to, I'm like trying so hard to transform where like just two days ago, I have a two hour conversation with Guy Sengstock. Oh, wow. Lucky you. I love Guy and I have become friends. And I love Guy. He's an amazing, beautiful soul. No shit, man. And, and reframing how I want to interact with people because I tend to I tend to seek the outcome. Yes. I I care so much about people, right? But then I misconstrue that care into some kind of need for change that contains this hubris that I have. Yeah, 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 me too, me too. And so I don't, I don't want to fight. I don't want to fucking fight anymore, man. It's exhausting and it goes nowhere. And it's, it's disconcerting to me. It's disheartening when I share things and I just get the natural response of just fight. Yeah. And, yeah. and I now am I, I'm actually getting some language. I'm getting some grammar, some, some vocabulary that can help me support people in bringing them out of that. Yeah. Or just yesterday I have a online text-based interaction with a number of people who don't like what I've posted and who just slandered the person because of their character. And I just remind them that they haven't contributed anything yet and that their own experience is vastly more powerful than their opinion here in this conversation. And seeing the change in them, they write back, fair enough. Okay, this is actually how I feel. This is actually what I think. This is like, oh, wow, now we're in. Now we're talking. Now this is some kind of thing. And so that's the project. 
that's at the center of my work right now, the work I'm doing with Christopher, Master Pietro, Guy Senstock, Peter Lindbergh, Jordan Hall, right? The people that, you know, that are working together on the, on the anthology with me, a whole bunch of people um, about re like, first of all, doing a deep historical analysis. You'll see that's the same strategy I used in Awakening from the Meaning Crisis on what dialectic was in the ancient world and how it afforded the logos. And then looking at participant observation, deep participant observation of these emerging practices of authentic relating and dialogue and discourse, and then putting them together so that we can take people from bad faith adversarial confrontation, fighting as you put it appropriately, and get them to a place where they're doing what we are both aspiring to right now. That's the psychotechnology, the meta psychotechnology that I'm pouring my blood into right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you for doing because that. Because I think that's, I think it's key. I think it's key. You're so right. Your finger is on the pulse, man. That is such a powerful node to push on. Yeah. We thank you for that. We really need it. So uh, I'm sort of running out of time. Yeah, that's an amazing place to leave off, man. That is an amazing place to leave off. <laughs> so, yeah, thanks so much. This has, been, this has been surreal in the right way. Yeah, I, I felt too. I really enjoyed this a lot, Ari. Uh, it was really, really good. Um, um, you know, I'm happy to come on again. I feel, again, this is a good faith. You're coming into this with good faith. Mm -hmm. uh, and people who want to engage in good faith discourse that is going to be complex, self-complexifying, it's going to have emergence to it, mm -hmm. it's going to have finesse in it, um, I always am happy to participate in those kinds of conversations. Mm, thank you. It's very validating and keeps me seeing the path. Okay. So thanks. Have thank a great you. day. We'll talk soon. Yes. And please let me know when this goes up because I'll promote it on my, uh, on my platforms. I would love that. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Great pleasure meeting you. <laughs> great pleasure meeting you, John. I'll stay tuned, buddy. Keep up the good work, all right? Thank you for your encouragement. It is much appreciated and needed. Thank you very much. Yeah. See you later, man. Bye-bye. Okay, you guys. I know that you got a lot from that. This is super deep stuff. Feel free to, to listen again. And also, I can't encourage you enough to check out Dr. John's channel on YouTube, John Verveke. He leads guided meditations. He talks about the meaning crisis and has this huge series that he's put together that encompasses enti his entire life's work. He is a servant to humanity and I am so deeply grateful that he exists and that we were able to have this conversation together. As he says, he will be back on this show and I am looking forward to that. So you guys stay healthy, stay sane, don't fight. Come into Dialogos with one another. There is a collective intelligence that emerges in conversation. This is how we have evolved. This is how we can move forward. This is how we evolve. It is our path forward into better states of being. And I encourage you to flex that muscle and practice that. This is a deep practice. 
I love you so much. Thank you, Dr. John. You are the man. I'll see you guys soon. See ya.
strange it is. 